and let's welcome Holly back. She's had a few months maternity leave and it's good to see her back and with an extra child, an extra daughter. We're going to continue in our series through Matthew and starting with the passage at the end of Matthew 26, 69 to 75, talking about Peter failing or Peter's disowning Jesus. Some of you will remember a few weeks ago, might be four weeks ago, I think I actually used this passage and said that I better apologise to the person who's going to be speaking on this passage in four weeks' time because I pinched this passage four weeks ago, but I'm going to make up for it later. I'm going to read an extra passage that's not part of Matthew, but uh, we'll get to that when we get to it. So we'll start with uh, verses 69 to 75 in Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And the rest of the passage is from chapter 27, the first 10 verses. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. As Holly mentioned when she was talking about these uh, two passages or these two parts of chapter 26 and 27, you couldn't get a bigger contrast between the first passage that we read at the end of chapter 26 
and the passage at the beginning of chapter 27. In other words, the contrast between Peter and Judas. The difference basically is the way the word has been translated in chapter 27. It says uh, in verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Those of you who grew up using the King James Version or one similar will notice that the NIV translates that word remorse, whereas in the King James Version and other ones around about that time, it was translated repent, which is an incorrect translation, in fact. It's a completely different Greek word. I'm not a Greek scholar, but apparently it's a completely different Greek word. The difference between these two people, between Peter and Judas, is that Peter repented and Judas didn't. Judas was remorseful, as we'll see in a minute, but Peter was repentant, as we'll see when I get a passage in John 21. Repentance produces change whereas remorse merely produces sorrow. When I think of Judas, I think of this man also, Esau. It says of Esau in Hebrews 12, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. We know the story from Genesis. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There you have a very similar reaction from Esau. He was sorry for what he'd done. And remorse, the idea of remorse is that it carries with it the idea of guilt, even sorrow, and sometimes even self-pity. But it's not the same as repentance as we'll see when we look at the story about Peter. Esau sought it with tears, it says. So the sorrow produced the tears, and the same I'm assuming with, uh, with, with uh, Judas. He was sorry for what he'd done, but he didn't repent. And that's the difference between these two passages. In fact, the Greek word that... Um, uh, is translated remorse in the passage in chapter 27, carries with it the idea of guilt, uh, remorse and regret. Remorse enslaves you in sorrow, engulfs you emotionally and leaves you feeling sad, depressed, hopeless, but essentially unchanged. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians that talks about the difference between godly sorrow and normal sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Judas was sorrowful for what he'd done. He regretted what he did, but it didn't change him. Peter wept tears. It says at the end of that uh, chapter, chapter 26, it says, and he went outside and wept bitterly. His was godly sorrow. Quite a bit different from the sort of sorrow that engulfed Judas. So remorse leaves you in sorrow, but essentially leaves you unchanged. It's also guilt. 
uh, obviously, Judas felt guilty because he went out and hanged himself. But guilt is a prison. Anyone who's suffered from guilt will know that it's a prison that keeps you perpetually bound, but again, essentially unchanged. And the word metamelamai, the word that's translated remorse in the NIV version, also carries with it the idea of regret. But regret is not repentance. Regret is a form of self-pity. It's focused more on your own personal loss than on the pain or loss that you caused others. And again, essentially it leaves you unchanged. The difference between repentance and remorse is that repentance is an intentional decision to change. And when genuine repentance occurs in a person's heart and mind, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit will release his power to affect change. And we see that when we get to John 21 and talk about the last part of, G of uh, Peter's story. The thing about repentance is it doesn't increase God's desire to be with you. God wants to be with you regardless of whether you repent or not. God wants your company. His desire is to be with you. Repentance, when you do it, when you repent wholeheartedly before our Heavenly Father, it increases your capacity to be with him. You remember King David. He um, committed murder, committed adultery and then murdered Uriah for something like a year, almost a year it says, that he didn't repent. Did that mean that God had less of a desire for, uh, for David to be with him? No, it just created a barrier between David and God. The barrier was on his side, not on God's side. And the same with us. Repentance is not God saying, I don't want you to come near, anywhere near me because you've still got this sin that you haven't repented for. He wants us to be near him all the time. But repentance allows us to feel that fellowship with him. As I said earlier, I spoke about Peter disowning Jesus a few weeks ago and having done that, I really can't go into that passage any more than I did a few weeks ago. So I want to now go to John 21 and finish the story in the Gospels at least about Peter. There's a lot more about Peter in the Acts of the Apostles but I just wanted to, to read this bit in John 21 because I think it, it rounds up the story of Peter. I don't want to leave it with Peter just weeping bitterly. I want to see him restored, and that's the way this passage is headed up in my Bible. It says the restoration of Peter, or Jesus reinstates Peter. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. 
Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you would stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the type of death, the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Just before that passage that I read, you'll remember that Jesus was on the lake, the, the shore of the Lake of Galilee, and the, the disciples or a number of the disciples had gone out fishing and hadn't caught a thing. And then Jesus said, put your net on the other side of the boat. And of course, they brought in a whole load, load of fishes, 153 according to John 21. I don't want to go into the meaning of that 153, although I'm tempted to, having a mathematical background. But the thing that struck me as I read this passage is that they got to the shore and they found that there was a charcoal fire with fish on it. When was the other time there was a charcoal fire? Only two times in the New Testament does it mention this word charcoal fire, specific. The first time was when Peter denied the Lord and he was sitting around the fire. And Jesus must have deliberately put a charcoal fire on the shore of the Lake of Galilee with a fish on it. And I wonder if Peter came at, if Peter jumped in the water, it says. He, he, was, uh, he had to put his cloak on him and he jumped in the water and he met Jesus on the shore and probably the first thing he saw was this charcoal fire. I wonder what thoughts went through Peter's mind. As he saw that charcoal fire, he would have remembered that the previous time he'd been around a charcoal fire was when he denied the Lord three times. That's just my thoughts. But Jesus asked him three things. And he starts by saying, do you love me more than these? I wonder why he said, do you love me more than these? Do you remember Peter when he said he would never deny the Lord he said, even if these do, I would never deny you, Lord. So Jesus said, do you love me more than these? And three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? I wonder if he used those three times to remind Peter that Peter had denied him three times. I wonder if he's bringing home to Peter the fact that three times I'm going to ask you, do you love me? And three times you denied me. I'm not sure. But two times, Jesus uses the word agape. He says, do you love me, agape? Do you love me, agape? Peter replies using filio, which is the brotherly love type of uh, word, as opposed to the unconditional surrender, uh, sacrificial love. Peter says, yes, I filio you, in response to Jesus' first, first question. Again, second time, Peter says, yes, I filio you. And the third time, Jesus condescends, as it were, and uses the word filio the third time, coming down from agape, agape to filio, almost as if he's saying to Peter, Peter, I'm going to allow you to love me on a different level, but in the future, I want you to love me at a much higher level. So he says in... in um, in verse 
in verse 16 or 15, feed my lambs. I wonder if Peter, thinking back on this particular incident, wrote these words in response to Jesus' request to feed my lambs. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 3, he says, Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk, so that by you, by it, you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. I wonder if Peter, thinking back on Jesus' request or Jesus' command that he feed his lambs, realised that you feed a lamb milk, not, meat, not grass. And so he would have been careful in his, in his ministry, in his leadership of the church in Jerusalem for many, many years and then outside of Jerusalem, he'd have been careful to feed the lambs the milk they needed. But of course, he wouldn't expect them to stay on milk. He'd want them to grow up and to be more mature. But he wrote these words, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. And then the second request, the second um, uh, command of Jesus was to take care of my sheep. Some translations use the word feed my sheep again, but it's a different Greek word apparently. And the second time, the word means to protect, tend or shepherd. The first time when it says feed my lambs, it simply means feed or pasture my lambs. But the second command, take care of my sheep, is the idea of protection, tending or shepherding. And Peter uses these words. In 1 Peter 5 verses 2 and 3, he says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I wonder if Peter wrote these, wrote these words in response to this command of Jesus to take care of my sheep. He realised that as a shepherd, he needed to tend, for the, tend the sheep, pasture them, sure, but to watch over them and protect them. When I thought of that word protect, I thought of an example that happened to us just this week, just this past week. We looked out on Monday morning and in our backyard we saw this. The mother duck with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight ducklings. There were ten uh, eggs in the nest in amongst all those agapanthus at the back, but only eight of them hatched. And, of course, this was rather special to us. But when I thought of the word protect, I thought of this. Where are the ducklings now? The mother duck collects all eight of them. I don't know how she would have done ten. Eight of them was bad. It was hard enough. But they're all underneath. And I'm reminded, of course, where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have, would have loved to gather you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. That's the duck gathering the, the ducklings. You can see it was raining at the time. 
That's the idea of protection. That's what uh, Jesus was asking Peter to do. Jesus was saying to Peter, take care of my sheep. Now, a mother sheep doesn't grab all the, get all the, the, uh, the lambs and put her underneath, but this, I think, is a better idea of protection. Protecting from the elements, in this case rain, but also from other sorts of things that can grab the little chickens, the little ducklings, including a magpie that started swooping over the ducklings. Sorry, Andrew. And then the third time, Jesus says, feed my sheep. And I wonder if Peter, when he was given that command to feed my sheep, wrote these words. And he says this, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to, ref to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. I wonder if Peter, thinking back on those words where Jesus said, feed my sheep, and it's the original word to mean feed and pasture. I wonder if Peter, when he wrote these words, was thinking, this is my task, to remind you of the things you already know. And let's face it, 99% of what is said from this platform, either by Andrew or myself or anyone else, everyone in this congregation will have heard before. But we need to be reminded of them regularly. We need to remind ourselves. Every morning we need to read the scriptures and remind ourselves of things that we probably already know. And so Peter's saying here, I'm going to remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. He thought it was his task to feed the sheep by reminding them of things that they probably already knew and keep reminding them and reminding them. So three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? And three times he said, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep and feed my sheep. And as far as the story about Peter's concerned, that's the end of it in the Gospels. We hear more about him in the Acts of the Apostles. But I didn't want to finish talking about Peter without talking about the fact that he was reinstated or restored because the difference between Peter and Judas was, Peter repented, but Judas only had remorse or sorrow. Jesus was preparing Peter for leadership. And this kind of leadership that Jesus wanted Peter to exhibit had authority, sure, but it had also brokenness and humility. And that's what he wanted to bring home to Peter. Peter was qualified for leadership because he'd been humbled. And that's, of course, one of the prerequisites for anyone in leadership, that we need to be humble. Let us close in prayer. Loving God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the examples you give us in your word. We think of the example of Peter. Sure, he failed, failed miserably. But Lord, you restored him because you could see the potential that he had to be the leader that he eventually became. We just pray, Lord, that as we think of these examples, 
that we may learn, Lord, to repent when we, when we need to. We may learn to keep close accounts with you and to seek to be your children wherever we go. We commit our day to you and thank you now for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.